Welcome, everyone, back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined two days post-Christmas by Tracy <laughs> Pearson. Tracy, how are you? I'm good. Is that was that the voice of Christmas future? What the hell was that? I don't know. It was sort of like a like a movie preview voice from like the early 1990s. Like, oh yeah, it's like the you... sequel to Speed, Speed Two, Cruise Control. You um, could do that. You yeah, could, could actually do that. Yeah, I could do it. Yeah. Um, they don't do that anymore. Don't they have any cheesy? They don't really do trailers che- like no, that. No, it's not cheesy anymore. It's like all oh. artsy and fartsy. You know, it's not fun. And then the trailers give away the entire movie now. Yeah, it's, it's crap. They've Like so many other things, what they've done is they've like just studied it in labs, like what actually gets people out to movies instead of just getting somebody with a deep, gravelly voice to yell at you. Um, so it's it's unfortunate. We've lost a little something, I think, as a society because of it. I, if some, I will do whatever anyone wants me to if they talk to me in a... Low, deep, gravelly voice. That's that's the story of actually the patriarchy, Tracy. Yeah. You know what else? If someone calls me gorgeous, Dave. Yeah. I called you gorgeous, <laughs> and now you're all buttered up. I swear. So I asked Dave how my voice sounded right now before we went on the air, and he said gorgeous. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever been called gorgeous, but now I know why people like it makes you just feel giddy. We should call everyone Gorgeous, each other gorgeous. Oh, I agree. I agree. Um, I think that's don't don't overuse it, but just keep it in your repertoire out there, people. It really works. Yeah, it's an essential bit of the puzzle. Yeah. All right. Well, we um, we are recording this. uh, We didn't really take a week off because we're recording this on a Sunday um, of the week that we were going to record. So, don't give us any of your crap, people. Um, But we haven't really recorded since. UCLA's last weekend of actually playing sports uh, because they haven't they've decided not to play sports for a little while now uh, because of the canceled UCLA Oregon basketball game and also UCLA opting not to play in a bowl game so uh, we still have to talk about Ohio State Stanford a little bit I don't really want to talk about Stanford too much but I do want to talk about the Ohio State basketball game um, but we've also got a lot of football news and notes to go through but we wanted to start with basketball God, it seems so long ago. That Round game. ball. Yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. Because we had like all the, you know, all the frou-frou frame family stuff in between. You know, uh-huh. it'd be one thing if this was November and we were talking about a game a week ago. I still wouldn't remember at all, like any bits of the game, but I would feel like it was more recent. Now it feels like it was several months ago that UCLA um, played Ohio State. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Um, anyway, that game uh, was disappointing i think because um because they were so close to winning it um you know it was i think for much of the second half they were ahead um you know going into basically the last five to eight minutes ucla looked pretty good and then at the end they kind of just got out physicaled um you know ohio state was able to get those big body dudes down low and just sort of abused Jalen Hill and Cody Riley. Then there were some brain farts late. Chris Smith had, uh, I think, one of the worst and slowest doubles I've ever seen. Um, and ultimately led to the, the seven-point loss to Ohio State. I think it's going to go down as probably a good loss. Ohio State looks like a potential you know, quad one team, yada, yada, yada. Uh, but UCLA's got to start getting some good wins here, too. Um, because the yeah. Pac-12 doesn't look good. Um, yeah. So... It was a missed opportunity. 
I don't think it says anything particularly negative about this UCLA, this year's UCLA team, aside from the fact that in a you know semi away game they didn't quite have the muscle late to match up. Um, but other than that, I mean, this is a game you could totally see flipping the other way too if they played again. Um, I think it felt it felt very much to me like a fifty fifty game. I I think that's you said it. Um... To me, the, the takeaway, I, like the review I wrote, through most of the game, I was I was sitting back and just really enjoying the game because I thought, other than the fact that UCLA can't shoot, every other aspect of the game, they were playing pretty well. Um, the offensive execution was on a level that I don't even know if we saw that good of execution last year or at least as good as we saw ever last year yeah, real but, quick note real quick note can people yeah. stop talking crap about the offense this year God, i mean i know God. it's not like uh, ballet on the court or whatever but they're the 12th best team in offensive efficiency this is like look i know there were a lot of complaints about ben howland's offense because it was slow but when ben howland's offense was really good it was always super efficient like this is it's you know, basically you know like a good ben howland offense right now you know what it is dave it's this simple and i'm sorry i'm, I'm this is going to be semi insulting so i don't and it sounds condescending too i don't think that people just can really I, I, so many people are conditioned into looking at a basketball game and they think good offensive basketball is is mostly transitional basketball, um, getting out and running in transition and dunks and and threes. Yeah, I, I think that's they can't distinguish. They they don't have the capability of looking at a basketball game and seeing when it is executed well offensively. That game was really well executed offensively. Well, and, uh, they just like, can't shoot, but they're not yeah. making transition baskets. They're not getting out and running and dunking and all of that. And so much now today in basketball overall, good offensive basketball is is defined by that. A ton of possessions, quick possessions, scoring transition. Yeah. Right? They don't turn the ball over. They offensive rebound really well. And they shoot a lot of free throws. I mean, I yeah. know it's not like that's <laughs> that's not pretty. Um, that's old school, baby. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's effective. Um, and so, I mean, I think like a well-designed set, like – and maybe that's what people mean like coming out of a uh, out of bounds do does does UCLA have some really intricate set that's going to guarantee a bucket you know cuz Howland had a couple of those that out of a, out of bounds situations it was really good and that was just you know he wasn't like a offensive mastermind but he was really good at that sort of thing um designing a set offense i don't know if Cronin's exactly that same thing but he emphasizes certain things that are in the underlying statistics of the game Super important for offensive efficiency. Um, yeah. And I think people might be drawing their impressions just from the first two games of the year where it did look really rough, um, where there wasn't a lot of movement. Guys weren't moving around. There wasn't a lot of passing. Just it was yeah. a lot of, you know, just kind of stand around on the perimeter and then jack up a shot. Um, but since Jalen Hill's come back, basically, and they have a real offensive rebounder down low and somebody who creates a lot of free throws, um, I, I think that's helped a lot from a spacing standpoint and just from a, you know, doing the little things that matter for um, continued offensive execution. But it's been good. Um, the defense is actually the one that's been, you know, maybe a little bit disappointing from a yeah. uh, from a preseason expectation standpoint. A couple of things, too. Just a, a, one, uh, what I'm seeing also from the offensive execution is that um, 
there's a team-wide uh, not only ability but a penchant for passing the ball. Um, you're seeing good passes out of Jaime Aquez. You're seeing good passes from Jules Bernard and from Johnny Juzang. And it's not even just the assist, but it's the pass before the assist. So there's just that makes such a difference when uh, an entire team decides they're they're going to pass the ball. And I, you've seen that. So that enables them to run a lot of things out of their sets when you have players that are willing to do that or are capable of do that. So that's that's a lot what I've seen. From who the has offense. Tracy, who has the second highest assist rate on the team right now? Assist rate. You mean it's okay. Um, you ready for it? Who? Cody Riley. Cody who, ha- Riley. who has the fifth highest assist rate on the team right now? Uh, Chris Smith. Jalen Hill. Jalen Hill. So when your two bigs are passing the ball and sharing the ball and actually kicking it out when they don't have an easy shot, and I know Jalen Hill had one of the worst turnaround jumpers in, in history, actually, against Ohio State. <laughs> But um, when they're kicking it out from doubles, uh, that opens things up a ton. And they've yeah. both been doing a really good job. If you remember Cody Riley two years ago uh, under Steve Alford, complete black hole. Like, you threw that into him, he was not throwing it back out. He was going to go up with it. I think a lot of that was because of the way the team was structured. The bigs, and I think this even goes back to Thomas Welsh. I mean, I think the bigs, if you got it once, you've got to go up with it because you're not going to get it back again because it was so selfish um, from a perimeter standpoint, this team is unselfish. Um, I think Jules Bernard was the one player who you thought, okay, he's kind of a black hole coming into uh, the season, and he still sort of is. He's not, you know, not killing anybody with his assist rate, but it's much better than it was. Um, these guys share the ball, and it's a huge part of why the offense is altogether good. Uh, I think why it's hard for some people to come away and saying that was a a good example of offensive basketball is because they execute so many. It's just about result. Even if you execute well, but you only shoot 30% from three, you're most people are coming away and saying, well, that wasn't good offensive basketball. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's and 40% from the field. So again, if they had just hit three more threes and, Probably everyone, they come away with a win, and then everyone also comes away saying, okay, that was good offensive basketball. Yeah. Defensively, what I saw, just your, it's funny because a lot of times you, you can't just take your overall impression, but in this instance, the overall impression was the defining impression. Ohio State was just bigger and stronger, <laughs> yeah. and, and that made them last longer throughout the game. I, I mean, they were physically... There were, you just felt like you were going up against, you know, four football players as opposed to UCLA's kind of all kind of thin guys. I mean, I think you might have wrote it or someone that we that Chris Smith looks like he hasn't lifted a weight in the offseason. Yeah. Um, so that's where I thought they were physically just overmatched and in the long run that that really made a difference and when you're not making when you're not making your shots you know that's what's happening and you know Mick said they had a, what a few defensive breakdowns at the end and he's right that was the end but there were so many things that contributed to that and that was that this team was just was just bigger and stronger and yeah. they were wearing you down into those defensive lapses yeah. um, it, what does that mean for the for UCLA's team 
You know, it's interesting to think about. I, I, I don't know if they'll necessarily match up against teams that were as big physically yeah, as Ohio it's, State. It's a um, weird matchup, and I don't know how yeah. many teams there are like that in college yeah. basketball. It was, honestly, the way that team was structured, it was like one of those, it was like a, a really good mid-major, you know, where you end up with like a bunch of 6'6", just like power forwardy types who are just like big and strong, and they're not going to play professional basketball, but they, like some of these guys might. But they're still just like, they look like offensive tackles. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's a weirdly structured team for a high major. And the thing about them, too, and, I, you know, I don't, Mick Cronin, I think, it emphasizes defense a lot in practice, and I'm a big advocate of that. I think I tweeted in the middle of this game, it'd be very interesting to see Cody Riley and, and Jalen Hill in the game at the same time against Ohio State. Yeah. Just to get a couple of more big bodies in there that can match up. Because Ohio State's big bodies weren't necessarily guys who were quicker, you know, laterally or athletically that way. They were just seemed like they were bigger and bigger and stronger. You so that that, that would have been interesting. That Zed Key guy, the huge, yeah. like, literal yeah. offensive tackle, yeah. uh, he's a freshman. Just, yeah. That's so yeah, freaky. Yeah. And he, what, he was probably 240. Yeah, right? 245. Easy. And then um, Liddell, Liddell was 245. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so, like, from a defensive standpoint, I mean, I don't know if they're ever going to match up against a team like that, and if you want to call that a limitation, sure. Um, I think Jalen Hill, um, I think he had an overall pretty poor game against Ohio State. I don't think he's going to play that poorly again, Um, but he needs to, because he's a strong dude. He's not built the same way those guys are, but he can match up in that situation. He just, he was giving up low position a lot, um, and he just needs to play better in that situation, because he's the guy who needs to be counted on in those sorts of games to play 28 to 30 minutes. Um, because Cody Riley, he's big and strong too, to an extent, but he can't match up athletically with really very many high major posts um, in the low post. So you need Jalen Hill to play much better than he did in that game. But I would say just defensively generally, um, it's an improved team from last year. But the the main thing, I think, given Cronin's philosophy and just kind of the way um, – he approaches defense they really really need to up the turnover percentage they're creating defensively um it has not been even as good as it was last year um from a like a ball pressure standpoint um they need to start generating some more turnovers they need to generate some easy buckets off of those turnovers uh, because everything else has been improved um you know they're generally a little bit better um not fouling they're a little bit they're way better uh defending the three-point line um i think they're getting out on shooters a lot better and also they're they're forcing teams into um less effective three-point shots um you know they're not giving up as many like corner threes off of a pure rhythm play but they're not creating as many turnovers um and if this defense the the style that cronin you know kind of dictates they really need to up their deflections the the Block percentage has been down. Turnover percentage has been down. They need to pop those up. Um, and that's a that's an energy thing. I think it's also, and I know I've been just banging this drum for a long time, but it's also a playing Jalen Hill more thing. Um, he needs to be in the game. He needs to play better than he did against Ohio State, but he's been one of their most effective players all year, um, and he just needs to play more. And I'll say this. I think it's a play Chris Smith less thing. Too, yes. Because not only offensively, I rewatched that game. I know. Insane of me to do. And it does still seem like it was a really long time ago. While we think because he's 6'9 and he's athletic and 
okay, he's not playing well offensively. We then think, oh, well, he's playing well defensively. He's not. No. He's not. He wasn't, Definitely not he, against Ohio State. He wasn't against Ohio State. And this is what he does to them defensive matchup. UCLA plays one post, so he guards the post. Chris Smith cannot guard the opposing power forward. He's not strong enough. So that leaves that to Jaime Aquez, who's 6'6 and 215 pounds. And sometimes he's very capable of it when he's playing against like just a college player. But when he gets up against a 6'8 to 6'9 actual forward who might be an NBA type of player, he struggles a little with that because of just the, the, the size and athleticism. Chris Smith can't guard that guy. So Chris Smith is now guarding a wing. And there are plenty of times when Chris Smith can't stay in front of a guy who's smaller and has a little bit of quickness. Right now, overall, he's kind of a defensive liability. And then if you're talking about block shots and steals, all of that is affected because he's just not getting how many. You got it right in front of you. How many steals does Chris Smith have so far this year? And and how many blocks? I mean, this is a six nine guy who should be getting a lot. More. Jaime Yaquez is blocking shots. So Chris his Smith isn't. his block rate or his steal rate is no different from last year. But the thing is, in the second year in a defense, you would expect it to be better. Exactly. Um, the block rate is actually higher. Hmm. Um, That's good because it, it wasn't much last year. Yeah. So I would say. Honestly, up until this last game, I thought he was playing okay defensively. I think he was just completely in his own head. But I think, to Cronin's point in the postgame, I think he was completely taken out of it by how physical the Ohio State bigs were. But right. if you're the best player on the team, the quote, best player on the team, and the you know the alpha or whatever, you can't be completely taken out of your game because some guy is 30 pounds bigger than you. Um, like, t- All right, then pull whoever out to the perimeter and go to work on him. And then defensively, front that guy, you know, try to try to deny a ball. Like, just you can't just passively play. Um, and I think that's – it's the thing that's been his problem since, you know, his freshman year. It's just passive play. Um, I think he – I mean, it's my, my – I don't know, putting on my psychologist cap. I think he overthinks things. I think he's always thinking on the court. Um, and well, you can just I, see it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the problem with him, Dave, right now is that, and I don't fault Cronin for this at all, because it was a natural progression in coaching Chris Smith. You need, you know, the the entire offseason, you need to now take the step up and be the alpha go-to guy. That's that's your role. This, and I don't, I don't think Chris Smith is that guy. I don't think he has it in him to be that guy right now. I think what will the number one way we'll be able to judge Cronin's coaching this year. One one issue will be how he manages the Chris Smith issue. How does he get him to be productive? Do you keep saying you're our guy, you're our go-to guy, and hope he plays himself out of this, or do you kind of reduce him to 20 minutes a game? Do you take him out of the starting lineup? What does that do to him mentally? How do you manage Chris Smith is going to be one of the biggest issues for Mick Cronin this year. And I I literally don't know. I, I don't know if you keep saying we're behind you. I, I know what most coaches would do. 
I know what Ben Howland would do. Ben would say, this is what I've decided on, and we're riding this sucker into the ground <laughs> no matter what happens. Chris, you're my guy. We're staying with you. And, I mean, Nikola Dragovich, <laughs> you are going – I, you are my guy. Keep shooting. Keep shooting. I don't care that you're don't, shooting 22% from don't three. Drago, don't Drago Port Smith. Don't do that. That's <laughs> you not, know what that's I mean. Not, yeah, I get it. I get it. Most coaches say, I'm writing. I'm, I'm, this is what I decided at the beginning of the season. I'm sticking with it. I, I, I don't know if Mick Cronin will do that. But it's I don't think he's wired that way. I think, I, okay. think, I, think, I think Smith will be on a – here's what I think. I think Smith is going to start at least the next couple. If his funk continues after this long layoff, because um, it's basically uh, 12 days between games – if the funk continues, then they're going to have to start Jules Bernard over Smith because Bernard's playing really well and then have, you know, just whatever comes from that. The, the thing with Smith, I mean, so I'll, I'll, I'll give him a, a mulligan, going back to our old term, on the Ohio State game because it was, you know, just knowing him as a player, the whole thing. Going up against big physical dudes, he's going to occasionally just do that where he's just kind of absent. And like we said, that's a weird matchup. There's not too many teams that are just going to beat you up the way Ohio State can. Um, the thing that's kind of fallen completely off in his game is all that mid-range stuff. He always had that. He had it his freshman year. He had it his sophomore year. He had it his junior year. He is shooting 37% on two-point baskets this year. Yeah. Last year it was 50. The year before it was 46. And the year before that it was 53. He cannot do it. He's he's fading on every single one of those shots. He's not going up just strong and straight. Um, and he's blowing layups, too. Um, he needs to reg regain that form if he's going to be the multifaceted offensive player they want him to be. And so what I would have them doing is working on sets for him where he is just hitting corner threes for sure because he's a good three-point shooter now. Um, but on top of that, just have him working this week on, okay, here's your... 10-footer. Here's your 12-footer. Just keep doing those. Work off the elbow. Yeah. Do your 10-12-footer. Let's do this. Um, and just have him working on going up straight and shooting the ball. <coughs> because that's that's really what is missing this year is he's just like not – he's not taking those shots as confidently as he did in the past. If he did I that think, alone, yeah. he would be more yeah. effective than Jules Bernard and would be able to stay in the lineup because that gives them – it gives them two dimensions to the offense that Bernard, he's more of just a driver. Um, so uh, they've got to get that working and they've got to get that working for the season. I don't think you're yeah. going to go far without Chris Smith. I think he does need to be, I don't think he needs to be your number one, but he needs to be an important part of this offense. Right. Um, I think it is. I think that all stems from him believing he is the guy, he's the man, he's the alpha dog and he's the go-to guy. Because when you, before, I don't think he thought of that of himself. So when he just has a couple of dribble pull up at the elbow, that's stretching himself. That's before, that's that was really asserting himself just to do that. Now asserting himself is multi-dribble, really putting it on the floor, going in the basket, some off-balance floater because he's forcing it. He needs to just bring himself back. And that's, a, I think it's a mentality thing. Yeah. Just... Back yourself off. We don't need you that much. You don't have to force this. This is not on your shoulders. Just play within yourself and stop. And I think he'll he'll probably 
his mid-range is where he should be. He's 6'9". The guy guarding him, he can shoot over. <laughs> so just get a, loosen him up a little, get a little bit of space, and take that shot. That's, that would be a good baby step, just to get there. Just say, you know what? Don't force anything to the basket right now. Let's just get your mid-range back to where it was. And maybe that will give him some confidence. Yeah. But I still think they could keep him in the starting lineup and only play him 20 minutes. I think there's, I think he's obviously kind of mentally fragile a little. Um, I think taking him out of the starting lineup would probably be a big blow. I, I think they need to keep him in, but play Jules Menard 28 minutes uh, at least for the next couple of games and yeah. see how and see where Smith is. All right, you wanted to also address the whiners whining about basketball recruiting. Yes, uh, that's why I did that digger, that dig deeper thing into recruiting. I just want every, and I understand the natural reaction here is, wow, UCLA still has some needs in recruiting, and there's no one they're recruiting at this point. That's true, and that would be a good thing to think in any other year, but this weird pandemic-impacted uh, recruiting cycle. Right now, there aren't any twenty, and it's just not the pandemic, but we'll, I'll elaborate it. It's in this 2021 cycle. They have not had, they've had a dead period since March. They have not seen anyone. So there was a very small pool of 2021 guys who were left that haven't been picked over and that haven't signed even. So it's not like there are guys out there that they could be going after and if there were some guys on the east coast you're still in a deficit that it's UCLA on the west coast and these guys it's just hard to recruit through zoom if you if you haven't seen them in person so there's that and then there's this this thing looming out there which is I, I don't think we can oversell it the transfer portal is going to be literally college free agency in August like we said August 1st they are passing a rule that you can transfer and not have to sit out a season like you normally would. This is going to open up. So the, the transfer portal, I think last year set a record. It's only been around for four years, set a record with in football for 1900 players. They are estimating it could go to 5,000 and it's going to be the same with basketball. There are going to be so many guys out there in the portal. UCLA is going to, very much look at the portal and they're going to look at any 2021 guys that emerge if there ever is a high school basketball season that's played so they can actually see that there is a guy who's worthy that, that's UCLA level and then look at the portal which UCLA is setting up to potentially be a good destination for a transfer you could see let's say a high scoring combo guard saying wow, they could really use me. They need someone to shoot threes. Like our guy from Pepperdine. What's his name? Ross. Yeah. Do you think if we keep seeing, keep saying this over and over that Ross is going to grad transfer to UCLA next year? Maybe we can make it happen. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that we say it enough, we'll, we'll make it happen. Yeah. Um, a guy like him or just a, a grad transfer who could plug in and really help with, obviously, what is UCLA's big deficit and it's been for two years under Cronin is just getting a guy who can friggin' shoot threes. I mean, you look at, I watch college basketball. I'm a, I watch so many other teams. There are guys, every team has two or three guys who can shoot. 
And UCLA just doesn't right now. So there's that. And then they've got to look for a post. Getting Mac NDN was a huge thing. Huge. If you look at their depth chart without him, there are some real worries. But getting him really kind of changes everything, especially with the fact, like I've been saying, and people will argue, what are you talking about? That Cody Riley and, well, Jalen Hill and Cody Riley, right now the prevailing sentiment from people in and around the program is they're both going to leave the program after this year. But why, Tracy? They can't go pro. Yeah, guys, this is not you as a fan sitting in your family room watching them play, making a rational decision. This is them. <laughs> Maybe they don't like school. Maybe they aren't good at academics. Maybe they just are tired. They've been there a long time. I'm telling you the reality of what it is. I'm not saying that it makes sense. So getting Mac at TN was huge, bringing him in right now so he's far more ready to play next year in the 2021-2022 season is huge. Um, and then getting another post player. It could be someone who wants to come in and showcase his talents for one year, grad transfer, perfect situation. He Obviously, a, a post transfer would say, wow, that's a good offense for me. They actually get the post player some touches in this offense as opposed to other offenses that we're very familiar with. Um, <laughs> God, that was so frustrating for so long. But yeah, they would perceive, perceive that this is a good place I could showcase my talent, you know, average double-double and go to the NBA, or an undergrad post player to go along with Matt Macedian. So there's a good, there are, I think there's some good perceivable holes that a transfer would be able to, to say, hey, that would be good for me, a good situation. Yeah, um, and it, it doesn't hurt to be in LA, you know, and get a grad degree from, from UCLA. So... Guys, that's where we are in recruiting. I know you keep wanting a big, long list of prospects, but it, until everyone gets in the transfer portal and everyone starts recruiting them, we just don't know who those guys are right now. A very unique year and unique situation, but that's where it is. Okay. All right. Well, should we, okay. uh, should we switch gears to, to the, the gridiron? <laughs> to, yes. to the pigskin? Let's do that. To the old what do you say? football. Okay. All right. Um, so we've, we're have we in the process of doing all of our season reviews. I don't really want to talk about the Stanford game. It was really dreary to watch. I, I will say this, though. It, despite it being a one-point double overtime win, that was a horrible football game because neither team was good at the same moment. Stanford had a blowout in the first half. UCLA had a blowout in the third quarter. Stanford had a blowout in the last four minutes. And then overtime was just a dreary mess. Bad game. Just And I was glad that Chip Kelly just ended it. Um, but we have to talk about the state of the football team. I've written two reviews just of the season so far. We're going to do one of kind of just generally the state of the program in a historical context. Like how to think about this season. How to think about where Chip Kelly is in his tenure, um, all of that good stuff. And I just want to, I want to start by just talking about one thing. I'm going to start writing probably tomorrow morning. Um, but I've started to do some of the, um, uh, research and stuff for it. Research, whatever. Um, <laughs> not actual research. But, research in your brain. Yeah. Research in my brain, but to provide some context for this season that I think, um, judging by the polling we've done, uh, a good a good bit. I would. I don't even know. Maybe a majority of bros are pretty. Uh, I think 
happy with the results of this, not the results, happy with the improvement from the team this year. And I think that's fair because it was improved. Um, this was uh, in the SP Plus, which is the Bill Connolly analytics system. This was the 48th best team in college football this year. But that's a big step up. Last year it was 79th, and the previous year it was 76th. Um, so the first two years under Chip Kelly, a bottom half team in college football. This year, a top half team. I think that's and 31 spots up. That's you know that's no joke. That's that's real improvement. But let's let's think about this in context because here's what we're talking about when we're comparing it. So, do you remember the New Heisel years, Tracy? Do, um, do you remember them? There are certain things I've blocked out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but I want to I want to make clear this season was of a piece with each of the final three New Heisel years. So that 2009, that was the 51st best team in college football. 2010, it was the 57th best team in college football. In 2011, when New Heisel was fired, it was the 55th best team in college football. UCLA in 2020, 48th best. Um, the year Durrell was fired, 2007. They were the 39th best team in college football. 2006, they were the 43rd best team in college football. 2005, they were the 37th. Uh, Chip Kelly, again, 76th, 79th, and 48th here in this, like, cresting year. They're 48th. So, and I, I want to be clear, this system, the S&P Plus, it's not factoring in wins and losses. This is all efficiency metrics. Um, this is just, you know, if you just look at the stats of the games, how good are these teams? So it's not even counting the fact that they went three and four. Um, it's just looking at the team itself. Uh, so just contextually, even in the last 20 years of horrific UCLA football, this wasn't even one of the really good years. You know, those are still 2012 to 2015, the Jim Mora years. And... The Carl Durrell years. <laughs> like, the Carl Durrell years were all better than this. So I just, you know, a good way to think about this is it's improvement for Chip Kelly. Probably enough to get him another year, the whole thing. But tap your own personal brakes a little bit until this sustains into another year of considerable improvement. Because this is not good. This was not a good season. It's a step up from the previous year. But it is not enough to say, oh, yeah, this is on the right track, unless you thought at the end of the Durrell tenure he was on the right track, which I can only imagine precisely zero of you thought. So it brings up what I think is the core issue and argument of Chip Kelly so far, um, especially we see it all the time on the forum. And I, I think it it. it is reduced down to one thing. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. And everything you said is absolutely spot on. But there, I'm devil's advocate being Chip Kelly and people in the program. And let's say they're tar talking to the UCLA administration and Martin Jarman, the athletic director. This is a process. Um, we, what we did here, this program was a complete mess. We had to come in and change the entire program and culture. And that, when you're doing something like that, completely changing how you do business completely, we, it is going to make us unable to win at a traditionally historic level. Now, 
saying that, shouldn't any coach who even attempts that at UCLA be able to win at a higher rate while turning around this program? That's the core issue because so many of the people who are pro Kelly will say what I said first is that, but what was he assigned to do when he came in? His, what he wanted to do was turn around this program and put it on a different course with a different objective and a different way of doing business. And that is so different than what's ever happened. This is the result. But then you have to naturally say, yeah, but uh, just about anyone could mail in six wins at UCLA, even while you're doing this. That's what, when everyone's arguing this in the forum, to me, it's kind of what it just keeps coming down to. Like, don't you think he would have been able to make, to just squeeze out more wins than this while he was doing what he was saying he was going to do? Well, and it's, but like fundamentally that whole thing, and I don't want to even give it, I, I don't even want to give it credence here. It's insane. It's stupid. It's not logical. It doesn't make any sense. You don't see this anywhere else. Like it does not, no, it does not compute. When when guys take over a program and they're rebuilding and they're actually good, they still win games. No. I mean, going 7-17 seven and 17 through the first two years, that was nothing other than just a badly run program. And I, I want to be ab- absolutely clear. The question is whether in year three they've shifted gears enough to make it good again. Because they did. I mean, they fundamentally changed some things, including like the complete overhaul of the defense because the program he had set up was not going to win at all if they didn't change the defense. So I like I don't want to even that one that one is is ridiculous on its face. Um, so but wait before you go anywhere else, you bring up another a really big point. He fundamentally changed the defense, right? And that that I, I mean, if we had seen basically the same defense with a three and four record, somehow they eked out three and four with the same defense that we saw the first two years everyone would probably unanimously be saying, no, this is over. This can't change. It's bad. But we saw an inkling of a good defense. Now, that leads you to two things. And I just wanted to jump on this defense before I, I lost it. Um, why, why, why couldn't they have had this scheme in the first two years? And he hired Jerry Azanero, a friend of his, who hadn't been a defensive coordinator for a long time, and let's just say you're hiring your friend and a lot of coaches hire friends and I'll just not even, I'll just say the big picture. I've seen a lot of coaches hiring friends and that's been huge in their demise as head coach, Jim Mora doing favors, hiring friends. Well, I I'd say that might've been his biggest contributing factor to his demise. And he barely um, knew anybody he hired when he first started his staff. And that was a big part of why those teams were good. Right. Exactly. Exactly. He, he hired it without his own emotional baggage of making that hire. Um, and then the big key, and this is it. This is the future of UCLA football, Dave. Is it, is it a fluke? Is that defense real? Or did they just throw in some pressure packages that Teams didn't know for the first few games, and then they scouted it out the last two. I don't think it's a fluke. I think it's I think it's going to be perceived as such if they don't improve the talent at some key positions. Um, I think it's a well-schemed defense. I think it's well-called. But I think the issue is, and I think this became apparent, and it's sort of going back to our basketball discussion, Stanford and USC are weird matchups for this 
kind of defense because of what they do at receiver. Uh, USC has a ton of talent at receiver. Stanford has a ton of big dudes at receiver. Both present problems if you're going a lot of one-on-one. So that's, I won't say completely rare in college football. It's not rare the way Ohio State's bigs are in college basketball, but it is something that you only really see from a couple of teams in the Pac-12. Um, so. so let me tell you this, too. And you're, you're, you're right. And along those same lines, the game I watched a, one and a half times was not the UCLA game this week. It was the Pac-12 championship and game. And Kayvon Thibodeau completely wrecking that USC offense not by himself. Only, and if you watch the Oregon defense from when they played UCLA to when they played USC, they... I, I swear, Andy Avalos, their defensive coordinator, he lifted like a blueprint UCLA's defense. Yeah. And but they just plugged in more talented guys. They have Kayvon no, but but essentially they have Kayvon yeah. Thibodeau, who he was he was basically able to wreck that offense out of a four man rush a lot. And if you've got a guy who can do that, and it's not and I, I that guy isn't a unicorn in college football. Edge rushers, as far as even the Pac-12 goes, you can get elite edge rushers. Defensive tackle, that's a lot harder um, at the in the Pac-12, just from the footprint standpoint. But the end guy, you can get. Um, there should UCLA historically, like you can list them off: Justin Hickman, Bruce Davis, Anthony Barr, like all these dudes. They're elite edge rushers. You can Dave get Ball. that guy. What's that? Dave Ball. Yeah, Tack McKinley too. I mean, there's a lot of guys like this. So um, they 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 need that guy. They've needed that guy for I, I want to say four full years now, um, and they just haven't been able to create him um, via recruiting, via development, whatever you want to call it. Um, but that's the missing piece on this defense, even more than like elite defensive back talent, because I think that's one of the areas where you can hide it if your pass rush is good and if your pass rush can get there with four. Um, and it just didn't burn them until these last two games, and I think it's a function of the uh, receiver matchups they had against Stanford and USC. Um, but that's something that needs to be solved in in talent acquisition. Uh, maybe they can get that in the transfer portal, but they need somebody who can rush the passer from the edge and can just beat an offensive tackle, you know, ten times a game and get to the quarterback and sack him, you know, a couple times a game, but pressure him constantly. That's and, a, that's I I'm going to do a story. In the biggest priorities out of the transfer portal, uh, I'd have to say that's probably number one, right there. That it would take pass this rushing defense, defensive end. It would have taken yeah. this defense to top twenty-five level, I think. If they could and have I think just number two laid off a, a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So that's that's it's really interesting about. It. We've kind of gone down a little bit of rabbit hole, but we've come to UCLA's defense. <laughs> Yeah. And what it and what it needs right now. If you're talking, if you're looking at the personnel, I don't think I see anyone like like that. Right? They don't have an edge rusher. Right? No. I, so I think we had we had hopes for Damian Sellers. I think he's still just early. It's just very early for him. I didn't see much from him this year, um, and I don't know that anyone else in that grouping. It makes a ton of sense right now. I, 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 we literally haven't seen them in those spots. Like what they did on the edge this year was a little bit of Caleb Johnson, a little bit of working defensive backs into that. But I don't think we really saw 
Because even Mitchell Agude, a lot of the times he was getting pressure, it was when he was, like, stunting into the interior. Um, so it wasn't – I don't know that we saw somebody just beating a dude on the edge a lot. Um, no, it, that wasn't Mitchell Agude. He got – the quarterback would get flushed into the middle, and he had some penetration, but kind of ran into him. It wasn't yeah. like – he was overwhelming a tackle no. with his edge capability. And that just as a side good. note, that's why I kind of hate pro football focus and their rating systems. Because it's like, yeah, what is are that? they just counting stats? I, I don't really know what they're doing. But like Agude, listing him as one of the better edge rushers in the Pac-12 was just, that, that floored me. That's done, that is done completely in a vacuum without having watched one game. <laughs> I don't know, because they claim to be like breaking down film and stuff. But I'm like, I, wow. I, I don't know, man. Wow. Yeah, um, that's that was yeah, you're right. That was one of the biggest like WTFs yeah. <laughs> of the last few weeks. So and good for Mitchell Agude, but yeah. Yeah, no, big big on him. Um yeah. but anyway, uh, I I do just want to hammer the point. This this was a better year. It wasn't a good year, and there's no excuse for the previous two. The like the whole rebuilding the program. Jim Mora rebuilt the program. Rick Neuheisel cratered the thing. And then he put guys in new spots, did the whole thing, and had a good year in 2012, a great year in 2013, a very good year in 2014, and a pretty good year in 2015. Chip Kelly had to rebuild it from even less of a cratering under Mora, and he had a horrible year in 2018, a horrible year in 2019, and an average-ish year in 2020. Just let's, let's not just think about it in terms of what we just saw the previous year. Let's think about this like... You're in the third year of Chip Kelly, the third year of the guy who was supposed to take this program to new heights. This was the year that was, I mean, obviously pandemic created some problems here, but this was the year where the team was supposed to be like a Pac-12 contender. And even if you, you know, take this record and make it the five and two that it otherwise might have been, uh, that's still not a Pac-12 contender. So I, I don't know, man. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's really a strange. It's a strange thing with other, uh, with other coaches. You you, it, it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as messy. Yeah, like uh, when Carl Durrell he started off, you could see on the field, nah, they're they're just not very good. He's not recruiting at a very good level. You always kind of were skeptical about it, even though he has a win-loss record, did better than Chip Kelly. Pac-12 coach but, of the year, Carl Durrell, you mean? Pa- yeah. That, actually, and actually, the, actually. Yeah, two-time Pac-12 crazy. coach of the year, Carl Durrell, you mean? Yeah, yeah. That, just, I'm I'm rooting for Carl Durrell, I am. But does he still seem like he's completely out of it on the sideline? Like no, he doesn't he's know just what, calm. He's just calm. Oh he's always God. been calm. But no, I think... I want to know. I want my to sincere see, take I on Carl Durrell. My sincere take on Carl Durrell is that, uh, as with many people, he got better at his job. Um, I would pay money to hear what he's saying through those headsets. I would love. <laughs> he got. He got older. Wait, and he should got I stand better. here? Should I stand? What are you guys saying? Oh, that sounds okay. You're just a hater. Absolute I'm not. Hater. I just. I'm you're trying just, to read his lips. You're he's absolutely not. guzzling haterade right now. Just it's watch, watch him you. and watch him and see how often he says something into those. <laughs> Look, don't don't hate and appreciate instead. <laughs> so wait, um, Rick Neuheisel. I mean, you kind of had a grasp. You knew it was over with Rick Neuheisel. Jim Mora, you knew it was doing well, and then last, you knew it was over. You knew it was over. 
Uh, it's like there's so it. much there's so much commitment. Uh, there was so much financial commitment to Chip Kelly, not just from his own salary, but from like the program stuff. That yeah. I think there's probably elements of the athletic department that just want this to work so bad because they've invested so much money in it. Um, but the, I mean, and then there's we'll, a different we'll see. Theory. I mean, there's there's another uh, there's a year coming where I think it's going to be even better than this year, but. I made this point in, I don't know, something I wrote about this team. I've written too much about this team. But something I wrote about it, which was, this feels more like, I, I don't feel this as building towards a, like, just constant crest where they're just good for a long period of time. I think it's building the same way, like, Colorado builds a good team, which is, it's a bunch of crap while you build up experience, and then it's good one year, and then it's really good the next year, and then it's back to crap. See, I don't think so. I think what they're trying, their goal here is Wisconsin, Iowa. They build through player getting three-star guys, getting them in the program, building them up, developing them physically, getting them, and then you keep that coming and you just start a whole conveyor belt of these guys. It's Wisconsin is the model. That is the model. Good kids, good grades, good citizens who are cannot generally come in and immediately play and then you have that basis. And then when you win at a little bit of a level, you plug in some four and five star guys and maybe take you over the top. I mean, look at Wisconsin has mastered this. Wisconsin generally for years and years and years didn't recruit at a very high level. I, I would bet you recruited rankings wise at a higher level than, than Wisconsin. Where's you, how's Wisconsin done in football in the last 10 years. I mean, consistently top 15 program, right? Yeah. I mean, they've been good. Uh, they've had a bunch of good years under Paul Christ. Um, they were good under Brett Bialema. They were good under Barry Alvarez. Um, I mean, they've been good since 93. Um, it's, I don't know. I mean, Wisconsin is, an interesting program in a lot of ways. Um, they are doing the big 10 thing where they just have all those like, you know, farm fed offensive linemen. Um, but you've got to know who you are in college football. Uh, UCLA doesn't ever have to do what Wisconsin does. Wisconsin does what it does because it has to, it's developed a strategy based off of what has been dictated to it. Uh, UCLA it's, but let me tell you why they think they have to do that. Because UCLA academics makes them... This, false! I'm not, false! I'm just telling you. False! I'm just saying, I'm just saying what their argument is. I is get that, it. I get their limits. argument. I get their false argument. But okay. the thing is, and I, I know everyone has trouble holding this thought in their brain at the same time, but UCLA has some academic requirements. Not Stanford, but UCLA has some. And... UCLA historically is a top 15 recruiting program. How do we square these two things? And there's one answer. UCLA's grading, academic, all that crap does not actually limit its recruiting. It just doesn't. Historically, it does not. So they can say that. And what they really mean is we don't want to work that hard to get these guys into school. Um, because you can. You can get them in. Jim Mora had top five classes, or top ten classes at least, depending on the 247 composite. But there were top ten classes. Rick Neuheisel had top 15 classes. Carl Durrell 
had one or two top 20 classes. <laughs> I love the way you said that. Uh, Bob Toledo. Bob Toledo had a bunch of top 20 classes. I mean, it's not... It, it's it's, a, it's that, a false canard. It always has been. And I think there's this... false there, anyway? A false canard that's, that's redundant. I don't know, right? man. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, you were rolling. That was really bad. But Keep it's going. still just like... Oh, I, I don't know... I, I, I understand why people say that because UCLA does make it a little bit harder to get guys into school. And occasionally you can't get Marshawn Lynch or Deshaun Jackson into school. And that sucks. But they've also, as we know, got one of the star players of the Mora era in when he had failing grades in high school. Failing grades. So what are we talking about here? You can do it. You don't need to do this. I think I'm, I'm devil's advocate again. I think what they're saying is let's put in... The foundation of a Wisconsin-like system where we are mostly guys who clearly can get into UCLA and we don't have to sweat their admission. Let's build that as the foundation. You get that built up. Then as soon as you start winning, you get an eight-win season, nine-win season. Then you can start recruiting some guys that Wisconsin generally can't recruit, that UCLA can. So it takes it with the basis and foundation of Wisconsin – you then take it to the next level. That's what I think they're thinking. I think that's possible and it's viable and I like it, but I just don't see why they could only win 10 games in three years doing that. That's my thing. Yeah, well, so I don't, I, I, I don't think it's totally possible. I think there's a recruiting base in Wisconsin based off of that philosophy. I think there's high school, rec- I think there's high school play that fits that. I think UCLA, um, by placement, it's, it just doesn't make much sense. Um, I don't think they can recruit the exact same types of guys that Wisconsin gets. Like, again, the farm-fed, huge offensive linemen, all that kind of crap, it's just not as possible at UCLA unless you recruit nationally, unless you recruit out of the footprint, which is stupid at UCLA. It's just dumb. You shouldn't do that. Um, and it's what it's they continue to dumb. do. They just continue to do it. They're they're. I mean, what's this cycle? It's... Quentin Somerville, he's in the footprint. Uh, Josh Moore, out of the footprint. Deshaun Morrell, out of the footprint. Keontes Lewis, out of the footprint. Christian Burkhalter, out of the footprint. Uh, AJ Campbell, out of the footprint. Hayden Nelson, out of the footprint. It's just, you don't need to do this. You really they don't. don't. Like, they don't like Southern California players. <laughs> yeah, because they're trying to be something that UCLA is not. Um, and it's stupid, and they shouldn't do it. Um, well, this is very interesting, because this leads into, we've talked all about that... Uh, the athletic director, Martin Jarman, you know, is going to do a review of Chip Kelly's, you know, performance here. Um, hey, Martin, it's bad. It might be getting better. Be, Give him another year to see what happens. Very interesting, everything that he weighs. Because on one hand, my perception of Martin Jarman is this is a pretty savvy guy. I mean, I, I think he gets he gets a lot of things about college sports, specifically college football. But he's also that young guy who gets social media. He gets what, you know, promoting his program. I think he just really gets it. From what I've also heard, he's a guy that um, he wants to win, and he wants to win pretty quickly. So while, like he said, when he was defending, you know, Chip Kelly in that football scoop, Chip Kelly's my guy. I get that. I, I, I know I would almost be 100% certain that, he does legitimately feel that. 
But he would be able to, I think, pivot very quickly if he feels even his guy isn't going to get him the wins that he needs. So it's going to be very interesting what happens here in the offseason as he's evaluating Chip Kelly's performance. Because one thing, he only, he's only been watching it since June. He doesn't have, you know, the last three years. Um, I'm sure he could talk to some people, but wouldn't exactly get him objective opinions. Um, and then what he does with the contract, with Chip Kelly's contract, the extension. Um, I haven't heard anything in probably uh, at least a week and a half. What I was hearing was that it was it was leaning towards uh, Jarman extending Chip Kelly with maybe a, a reduced buyout and then extending the contracts of his assistant coaches to make them have more job security. Uh, but Jarman is far more involved in the football program. Like they are working together. Jarman is really overseeing the program. And from what I've heard, he's very savvy about recruiting. So he would be on top of recruiting. So it'll be very interesting to see I'm just picturing the meeting where Jarman comes in and says, okay, let's talk about recruiting. And they pitch this whole thing while we're doing Wisconsin. And Jarman, what Jarman says, what does he say to that, Dave? Does he say, oh, okay, I get that. Or uh, no, this is UCLA. You don't have to do that. That's, that's kind of interesting to me on, on what happens in that conversation. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't, really, don't. I don't really have a feel for it yet because you could also see a situation where you know, Jarman, um, uh, everything I've seen from him on social media so far is him being supportive, extremely supportive, openly supportive of his, I, I wouldn't say embattled coaches, but certainly um, coaches who have drawn some consternation from the fan base, including Chip Kelly and Corey Close. Um, Close because she just can't seem to get over the hump of having really talented teams, but then actually turning them into, um, you know, elite, elite contenders. Um so uh, he's been very, very supportive, like vocally supportive. On but that's Twitter. the athletic director playbook. I know, yeah. but also uh, Dan Guerrero's absence from that allowed a little bit more of wiggle room about what it was actually, you know, what his actual opinions about these things were. Um, I mean, so Jarman's statement in response to the football scoop report, I thought was incredibly strong um, because it was so informal. Um, the way he phrased it, it was very friendly and informal and you wouldn't phrase it like that unless there was, you would give a formal statement if there was any truth to the rumor, if there was anything that like, I'm actually going to potentially fire this guy or let him go. Or, you know, if he wants to leave, I'm not going to stop him. Uh, it was instead like, this is ridiculous. Chip's my guy. Um, I wish he would have asked me because there's no way this is happening was basically what it was. And it was. It was strong because it was so informal, um, which makes me think Completely that... Completely agree. 100% and I, agree. And I don't... I just... Um, I don't know. I think it shows how savvy he is. I think that's what it is. Instead of releasing... Uh, like, uh, putting out a release that's written in release ease, we are very supportive of our head coach. He made it a tweet where it sounds like... We are... I'm supportive, friendly. He's my guy. You're the athletic director guidebook is you support, you have to project an image that you're always supportive of your coaches, no matter what, even if, you know, behind the scenes, you're saying you're fired. I mean, that's what you do because 
when you're hiring coaches out there, all coaches want to know they are going to go work for someone who's always supportive of them and has their back. This was doing it on a different, on a whole different way, which was far more effective, like you said, because it, it wasn't just some legally crap release ease that means nothing that we've all read. This actually resonated because it sounded like he was talking from his heart. That's what I mean. I, I think he's really savvy about this whole thing and he knows how to use social media. Um, but I've also heard he's very, very savvy that he's he's not going to let like some of this stuff go. He wants to win and he wants to win pretty quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. But very interesting about the whole thing. I don't think I ever remember too many athletic directors tweeting something out like that. No, right? no. That's that's a that's a new thing. That's a new media uh, thing. He's very he's yeah. he is very online. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, you wanted to address uh, quarterback transfer um, potential. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, UCLA's uh, pipeline with the Washington football program continues <laughs> apace. That's one of their you, best recruiting uh, situations right now. You, is you need the quarterback depth at, at Washington? Yep. You know, I, just overall, I want to say, like I've been saying. I, you know, this is not, this is no way by Chip Kelly's design, but he very much could fall into a very beneficial source of recruiting when it comes to the transfer portal. Um, guys who are in transfer, who want to transfer generally, or, you know, they've been in a program, they're over that whole thing about being shown love. They don't need official visits. They, they done all that. Now they want to get to a program that's going to prepare them to get to the NFL. That's what they want to do. Chip Kelly, you'd think if you were a player and you're going to go be a quarterback, I want to go play in Chip Kelly's offense. I mean, that's going to get me ready for the NFL. Um, Sports, science, nutrition, of course, all this stuff. I think it's very appealing for for transfers. it, it could be very interesting. There are high school quarterbacks and other players that UCLA recruits very hard. They they pick another school, and then after whatever, how many years, they decide they want to transfer to UCLA because that's kind of checks their boxes now as an older transfer. Ethan Garbers could very well be that. We have heard that there has been mutual interest as soon as his name went into the portal on Thursday, I think. Um I think I haven't I, I, since the holidays. I haven't heard that much. I got to tell you, I think maybe the last I heard was was Thursday that he was interested in UCLA. I hadn't literally heard if UCLA had offered him. Um, I'm trying to look into that. But post holidays right now, you know, it's tough to get that information. But I, I think if they offer him uh, from what I've heard, it could happen pretty quickly. It's. Even if they haven't offered him right now, if they're going to offer him soon, what their process is for offering. I know a lot of fans out there have said, what the hell are they waiting for? This is like would be the perfect guy with DTR returning, that you'd have this guy who would give you another good chance of finding the starter after Dorian leaves. All makes sense to me. UCLA has been very cautious and very selective about who they offer, not just high school recruits, but also transfers they kind of got a little bit of uh fomo when it comes to transfers like wow if we're gonna get this guy right now why who might else get in there that we could use who might be even better which i i think can be really dangerous uh 
I personally think if I had to say my opinion, I think with Dorian Thompson-Robinson returning, Ethan Garbers is, is the perfect guy to get. Um, he's a great fit for the offense. He's got a strong arm. He's a pro-style quarterback, but he's athletic. Smart kid who can think the offense. He throws accurately. This is all based on him as a high school uh, prospect. It will be home, be close to home, uh, feel really comfortable. Plus, if he transfers once, this is the beauty of transfers. The transfer again, you're almost guaranteed they're not going to transfer out. So this is the second time. So they're pretty much stuck with you. Uh, that's the way you could build good quarterback depth is through transfers because so many of them are just not going to transfer a second time. Um, so there's so many things here that make great sense and as a fit. I've got to I've got to confess I'm just hoping UCLA offers him very quickly if they haven't already. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. All right, and then uh, Jed the fish, our friend. Uh, yeah. From, from the that the, was crazy. The last uh, Jim Mora year uh, was hired at Arizona after they. Um, Got rid of Kevin Sumlin, who had lost literally a full season's worth of games straight. Uh, he was 0-12 in his last 12. Um, so Jed Fish will now take over there. I actually don't hate the hire. Um, I think Arizona fans were very upset about this one because they really wanted San Jose State's head coach, who was like 15-29 and 29 over those last four seasons which is crazy to me. Um, Jed Fish, unknown, uh, but he had a nice little offense at UCLA. Um, he he talks the part, smart guy. Um, I, I like that he never played football. I think, you know, and not just like from a, you know, nerdy journalistic standpoint, but just generally when a guy like that breaks into a profession that is so insular and based on playing, it means he really does have the chops. Um because he didn't, you know, he was a tennis guy. Um, so for him to, you know, rise to this level, I think speaks to some innate ability and talent there. Um, so I don't hate the hire. I'm interested to see how it turns out. But one ramification of it is Tracy. Uh, there was a report. We're, um, by the way, we're doing this. Um, we're taping this on Sunday, just so y'all know. Full recording it. Re recording, recording it. I, I don't have a tape deck. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I'm old. Look, you, uh, you hit me with false canard, you're going to get hit right back, Tracy. False canard. you, you got to make that the title of this. Are it there is. false canards? It's a um, false canard. That means it's true. Exactly. Um, what are we talking? Oh, uh, Jimmy Doherty could be a candidate to join Jed Fish's staff at Arizona. Uh, I, I have to say, I think Doherty overall has been a positive at UCLA, um, he pro I, I can't see him leaving unless he's, you know, offensive coordinator, which would be interesting because I think Jed Fish would want to be his own offensive coordinator at least for a while. Uh, I would really worry if Fish weren't his uh, own offensive coordinator there. Um, so, but overall, I think Doherty would be replaceable pretty much as it wouldn't be that huge a loss solid recruiter not incredible recruiter solid recruiter solid coach um so not that big a deal but when it comes to jed fish my impression and i got some good impressions 
you know, from some inside sources, really well respected at UCLA by the other coaches and by the players very much thought he was an offensive genius, uh, a player's coach kind of guy where they'd want to run through walls for him really bonded with all, all the guys really smart. I think he he'll be very good at saying all the right things, not in coach speak like to the media, but saying things that, you know, actually resonate genuinely. Um, because I think he's capable of that. My question with him is whether he's going to be disciplined. He's going to be able to instill enough discipline in a program that you need as a head coach, whether he is, he can be a hard ass enough and, and just have accountability throughout the program. That's a big job. That's a big part of, of a head coaching job. And that's my question about fish because we don't know that <laughs> he's never done that. And my opinion of him is that he's more of kind of a uh, he's more of kind of your your fun uncle than your disciplinary dad. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think that's right. But uh, Kevin Sumlin was horrible there, so I think he'll be better than that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that was an action-packed show, actually. Surprisingly. There was- so much action because we 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 talked a good game at the beginning of the show right you 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 people out there and us and we said there was a lot to talk about there really wasn't but we turned it into an hour and 10 minutes every show says that at the top no podcast tv shows we've got this is i like to level with the people i like to level with them and frankly said dave that we don't have very much in this show yeah and you never have dave i i've 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 joked about it. Okay, but, next time let's say that. Well, I mean, I, I've done it before, and I'll do it okay. again. God damn okay. it, I will. Um, <laughs> but this time, uh, I, I I lied to you up front, but then we turned it into something where it ended up not being a lie, and so self fulfilling prophecy. You yeah. said it, so we made it happen. We talked thirty minutes about basketball, and there the most recent game was eight days ago. And we didn't think we had anything to. You know what? Now we're doing a podcast about what yeah, we Yeah, no, no. Now we're getting. Let's stop. Now we're going fully up our own budget. Yeah, let's let it go. All right. Well, for Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24 7 Sports Network, and we will talk to you again next time. <laughs> remain. That was. That scared me. And it's very weird saying remain safe out there after you just heard that voice, but remain safe out there. From my voice. <laughs>